0: Today on Agnes Daily, and that's always a good strategy when you come, you know, uh, rather than a cold call on one of the fifth the leads of the fifteen different departments uh, within of uh, the Food and Ag organization in,
1: in Rome. You go to people that you know. Listeners, middle of the week episode of the Daily podcast, Wednesday, yeah. April twelfth, two thousand twenty-three. Tanner and Delaney here again to get you caught up on what we've found this morning. How are you doing, Delaney?
2: I'm good. I can't believe it's already the middle of the week, Tanner. Happy hump day.
1: Happy hump day. Yeah, it's, uh, it goes fast, especially when the days are getting longer. Sun mm-hmm. stays out. and You could enjoy a little bit of time outdoors.
2: That's true. I've been g- taking advantage of it with my daily walks, so I appreciate the warmer weather. I'm sure farmers do, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I said, we've got our, our bets for what the planting progress report looks like next week. And if it stays like this, I think I've got pretty good odds as far as those go. But it's not looking good for those that have high fire risk. We continue to see dry weather expecting to come from New Mexico all the way up to Minnesota. Uh, winds will accompany that warm, dry weather with sustained gusts throughout most of that territory for 25 to 35 miles per hour. Areas of Kansas could see gusts up to 50. Nebraska could see gusts up to 50 miles per hour. Central Iowa wind will hit that 20 to 35 miles per hour range with relative humidity below 25%. This puts a lot of this area, Delaney, at that outdoor fire risk, of course, Um, red flag warnings across the area. But if we push east to the eastern coast, nearly 2,500 acres of wildfire, area has been consumed and areas have been evacuated the blaze dubbed jimmy's waterhole fire is now five times its size and is burnt more than four hours prior to being discovered just before 10 p.m last night it was at 500 acres and uh by 2 a.m this morning it was at 2500 acres Only 10% of this fire has been contained. Nearly 170 structures have been evacuated and 75 to 100 more are at risk coming down the pipeline. Another fire in Indiana at a recycling plant is forced evacuations as well. Thousands of people have been evacuated from the Indiana town Richmond and due to the possibility of plastics being included in this fire and they expect this fire to burn for days so I know we'll continue to get updates on that story unfortunately for those residents uh, it looks like nearly a two mile radius has been evacuated and golly when you look at the pictures of this one that is some black smoke so unfortunately for the residents in that area it's going to have lingering effects.
2: Well, dinner, another thing that could have lingering effects is, of course, the war in Ukraine. We've got some big headlines coming out today as Poland and Romania have both taken measures to halt grain imports from Ukraine. Specifically, Poland here halted grain imports as of Monday as a new Polish agricultural minister, Robert Telis stepped into office on Friday. He said that moving forward imports of Ukrainian grain to Poland will be temporary halted to mitigate the impact on their local prices. However, transit will still be allowed for grain to move through the country. He said that they agreed to limit and for now halt exports to grain. And he said transit will be allowed, but very closely monitored in both countries so that Ukraine grain does not stay in Poland. Romania hasn't officially uh, blocked grain imports yet, but on Friday, thousands of farmers protested across Romania over the impact of those Ukrainian grain imports on their domestic prices, blocking traffic and border checkpoints with tractors and trucks urging the European commission to intervene. We're seeing a lot of anger rise amongst farmers in central and Eastern Europe, as we're watching this cheapened Ukrainian grain hit the market. And I didn't realize this Tanner, but apparently Ukraine grain is exempt from customs fees until June of 2024, which a lot of those farmers in that area are arguing is drastically hurting their ability to produce and sell their crops. So, only a matter of time, maybe before the EU steps in, or perhaps they're going to turn a blind eye to this. I don't know. It's going to be an interesting situation to see how it unravels.
1: Yeah, I was not aware of that as well, but uh, Ukraine is continuing to see definitely some uphill battles when it comes to exports. Only a single ship left from Ukrainian exports yest- ex- uh, ports yesterday. That lone ship was one of, two that were entered into the area and uh, only two ships left the day before zero ships were inspected yesterday according to the u.n data this is uh, around 27.6 million tons of ag products have left ukrainian ports since the black sea grain initiative the agreement obviously there that was protecting the war-torn country and allowing grain to flow out started at the beginning of April. Inspections, though, have been bogged down due to the accusation of Russia intentionally slowing inspections to curb these shipments. Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia have complete, uh, definitely been a, at each other's necks for this. The UN spokesperson said that they're urging all parties to keep vessels moving in the interest of global food security, but right now, it doesn't look like there's a clear solution anytime soon to get that ship number back up to where it was even at lower levels than pre the war uh what started february of 2022 so unfortunately it looks like a lot of exports have just been halted out of that region
2: Yeah. And on that same vein, Russia is really aggressively threatening to bypass the UN brokered grain deal or grain corridor initiative. They say unless obstacles to help their agricultural exports are removed, apparently talks are continuing in Turkey. And it sounds like Turkey and other countries have agreed that perhaps removing some of those barriers for Russian exports are necessary conditions to extend the agreement beyond Next month, but that's really going to have to get major support from countries all over the world, Tanners. We know lots of countries have placed sanctions on Russian goods.
1: Yeah, and it, it's interesting to see here what types of sanctions may show up against um, the Chinese. The Chinese continue to express military exercises and joint uh, demonstrations near Taiwan. And now Taiwan has sent out a call for help stating that China is getting ready to launch war against Taiwan. One day after simulated joint precision strikes, the Taiwanese military has issued a message coming from the foreign minister, Joseph Wu, condemning Beijing's actions and uh, is stating that it looks like the military exercises are no rhetoric. They seem to be trying to get ready to launch war. So then in the same region, Japan made a public announcement yesterday that They are announcing a development to build an array of advanced long range missiles. They're looking to bolster its defenses amongst the increasing tensions with neighboring China. The Japanese Defense Ministry has also concluded that there is an impending war between China and Taiwan. So they have signed a contract with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries to develop and mass produce weapons. Uh, this is a $2.8 billion contract and uh, is focused on those advanced long range missiles so that they may be able to fight back or defend themselves in a future cons- confrontation with China. J- you know, Japan is bending their interpretation of their post-World War II constitution, which is still in effect to put constraints on its self-defense forces. Uh, so they will continue to utilize their understanding of this agreement to work through other deals like this with MHI. Again, that was $2.8 billion invested in defense uh, due to fear of Chinese invasion.
2: Let's just a couple of quick headlines here in the fertilizer markets. Retail fertilizer prices continued to shift lower for the first full week of April 2023, which has been the trend since the beginning of the year. Seven of the eight major fertilizer prices were lower compared to last month, with anhydrous once again leading the way lower. However, we also saw major drops in nitrogen fertilizer as well, with an average price of just over $1,000 per ton. However, we also have a big headline here this morning that a Canadian mining company with facilities in Brazil are continuing to press on, even while dealing with some sensitive issues related to the Amazon rainforest. A unit of the Toronto-based Miner Brazil Potash is working to keep a $2.5 billion potash project on schedule, even as legal challenges continue in relation to extraction of fertilizer ingredients from beneath the Amazon rainforest in an interview the executive of this brazilian facility said that protracted licensing process hinges on court supervised talks with the mura indigenous people who have the right to be consulted under an international labor organization convention. The proposed mine that we're talking about here, Tanner, is going to be a really large facility and is supposed to make big waves in the fertilizer market. But the proposed mine and facilities are also located about 75 miles southeast of the Amazon rainforest capital. Mm, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but Manuas, uh, which is a native indigenous tribe located there. So not only is this facility potentially going to extract ingredients from the Amazon rainforest, which is obviously kind of a no-no, but they're also potentially going to impact indigenous people's um, habitation there. So it sounds like this is going to be going to the Brazilian courts and the situation here really highlights the risks associated with mining projects in the Amazon rainforest right now.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you brought that to our attention. It's just so far away. Sometimes we we lose what environmental impacts we might have in other countries. Uh, John Ernick, meteorologist for DTN, put out a little bit of a, a things to know article related to developing El Nino trends. So first of all, he states here that The sea temperature's changing in the Pacific Ocean. I wanted to kind of remind our listeners that this will, if continues to move forward, will change the normal jet stream effects that we've had. Typically, El Nino effects are strongest in the northern hemisphere where we are in the winter rather than the summer. So we may not see a strong change here immediately, but this does put the southern tier of the U.S. in a little bit of a wetter pattern which would be great because some of our friends in that area definitely and desperately need some rain. Central US usually ends up with a warmer year than average, Uh, but the biggest thing he wants to remind us is that every El Nino is different. There's different sea surface temperatures and areas of the Pacific Ocean that could see uh, minor differences from previous patterns that really affect where snow falls, where rain and that jet stream goes through. So it was a good article there if you want to head out to DTN and check that. But the only other thing I've got for today, Delaney, is the uh, experts were expecting inflation to fall less than what it actually had. Economists were expecting an annual increase of 5.2% and a monthly gain of two-tenths of a percent, but the actual report came in at 5% even for 12 months ending March, and we're right at one tenth of a percent so this was down from six percent in february and a four tenths of a percent increase so inflation is still there it is still strong but it was not as strong as it was a month ago
2: let's well, one thing that's also not as strong heading into the opening session are the markets what do you say we dive in here
1: let's take a look
2: may corn Is actually trending a little higher in the overnights here, but soybeans given up uh, quite a bit of yesterday's gains may corn up four cents in the overnight at 655 new crop corn will open at 560 up just three quarters of a cent in the overnight. May soybeans were unchanged in the overnight to open at 1497 and a quarter new crop beans will open at 1311 and a half down two and three quarters cents in the overnight. May hard red winter wheat added 11 and three quarter cents. We'll open here this morning at 880. And let's take a quick reminder at where livestock closed yesterday. June life cattle 25 cents higher will open at a buck 63.95. May feeder cattle opening bell here this morning at 207.82 and a half. And May lean hogs shed 47 and a half cents yesterday to open today at 82.37 and a half. Tanner, we've got a two part conversation here today and tomorrow coming to us from Dr. Joe Coletti, the Senior Associate Dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Iowa State University. So let's turn it over to that conversation.
3: Today we have with us Dr. Joe Coletti. He is retired de- retired associate dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences here at Iowa State University. And Dr. Coletti, you had plenty more titles and lots of education background, and I don't want to get that all mixed up. So could you just go ahead and introduce yourself for us with your education and just your relationship with the FAO as well? Because that is going to be a large topic we're talking about this morning.
0: Well, Jennifer, thank you, yes. Uh, So as Jennifer said, I I have retired from the the college. I was a senior associate dean for the College of Ag and Life Sciences from 2005 to 2021, uh, June 30, when I retired. I was also the associate director of the Ag Experiment Station, and then uh, ended up with the title of Professor Emeritus. So I rose through the ranks, joining Iowa State in 1978 as an assistant professor, and then going all the way to being a professor. Um, the My background, I am a, I'm a forester. I'm a particular type of forester trained as an economist and uh, with systems analysis and operations research emphasis as well. So think about dealing with uh, computer simulations, modeling, uh, you know, difficult uh, uh, Decisions related to the environment, particularly forests. But uh, one of the things that I, I don't have a formal relationship with um, the food, UN Food and Ag Organization, but we have a prof- I have a professional one, or I have had a professional one, and um, and that really is through standing up a project with a program and a project really with several colleagues, uh, the Associate Dean for Global Programs in the college, uh, Dean Acker, David Acker, and uh, Shelley Taylor, who leads now the global programs within the college as well. And there were other faculty uh, involved in this uh, program. And we'll talk more about what that, the details of that, this uh, particular program but so it's really a professional relationship with uh, the UN uh, Food and Ag organization.
3: Perfect. That is um, a lot of education. You've had a lot of amazing positions and that I'm sure has all helped lead to your professional or non-formal relationship with the FAO. And let's just dive into that for now. Uh, for listeners who aren't entirely aware, could you explain what the FAO or Food and Agriculture Organization is, their goals and initiatives, and kind of how you began your work with them?
0: Uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Food and Ag Organization, or FAO, or as Europeans will talk about it, they'll, they'll make it into a word, FAO. FAO is FAO. And uh, it is a specialized agency within the, the United Nations. It is uh, focused on really on food security and ensuring that nobody, no person or regardless of where they live around the globe is left behind in access to high quality food. So they think about, um, you know, re- reducing malnutrition or uh, people who are starving and that sort of thing. It started right after World War II and uh, currently there are 194 um, nation members plus the uh, EU as a member as a sort of separate entity, even though all the, you know, Italy, Germany and so on are are members. It's really about a an organization of the UN that really brings focus and effort uh, to working with all the different partner countries uh, to really uh, address uh, basically food and nutritional Uh, security globally. It does tend to focus on uh, uh, countries that are at the lower end of the economic and development spectrum, about 130 or so, Uh, but it varies depending upon uh, the region and the the issues and that sort of thing. And uh, we began our effort with the the college. Uh, This is a really I'll talk about Two different courses. Part they're called Globe courses. Part of the Global Resource Systems major. Uh, we knew that that was coming in development in the uh, just before uh, two thousand. I can't remember exactly nine or ten. And uh, in two thousand and eight, uh, we it, our discussions within the college led to a um, scouting trip to Italy. Uh, to Rome specifically, which is the headquarters of the uh, UN Food and Ag Organization, to see if we could really uh, put together with their assistance and their cooperation and partnership, uh, a program where undergraduates would go through a selective process, do some country, uh, some uh, training here in a course in the spring semester, and then go in country for four weeks in uh, in Italy, in Rome, and work on projects that the UN uh, Food and Ag Organization needed done, but they just didn't have the people. They didn't have the the intellectual capacity uh, there uh, to do them. So there were projects that uh, were waiting to be done, and we were uh, hopeful that there would be different departments and individuals in the departments in FAO that would say, hey, if you could bring a group of students that were really... uh, ability to work with clients, with the FAO as us as clients and work in a team setting uh, that we'd love to have you come over and work on these projects. So that's how that, uh, you know, relationship started. Uh, the scouting trip in 2008 was very successful. Uh, David Acker and myself and, and others uh, met with Shelly Taylor. We met with a number of the uh, people. We We started with people that we knew uh, that were Iowa staters. And that's always a good strategy when you come, you know, uh, rather than a cold call on one of the fifth, the leads of the 15 different departments uh, within uh, the food and ag organization in, in Rome, you go to people that you know. And so we worked with several, including Dr. Paul Betcher, who's uh, uh, got his PhD in animal genetics. And uh, and so it really was a sort of snowball effort there to, to make connections then with more Iowa staters. But the long and short of it was that we came away with a very positive, yes, if you if you could bring a group of students and they were and we would work in the spring semester with you at a distance, our our FAO would plug into a course and let the students get familiar with what what it is that the project's about. What the deliverables are and so on, then we'd love to have them come and work with us in country for four weeks uh, right after the spring semester ends, and that and that's what what developed. Starting in, we started the first uh, summer program in two thousand and
3: nine. Wow, that is crazy to think about that it started in two thousand and nine, especially since I have the opportunity to attend this trip and experience this opportunity. This currently and this upcoming summer and learning about the history of it is just absolutely fascinating and diving into other factors within the FAO a little bit more you touched on um, countries that they work with and some of their main focuses um, points throughout the whole organization but what other important factors are there when we're looking at the future of sustainable agriculture because the whole focal point of FAO is to really create a world that is directed towards the future of agriculture. And so I guess that's just such an important topic to discuss, I feel.
0: Right. Thank you. Yes, it is. And uh, really, I'll start with uh, right around 2000, um, food and ag organization FAO, along with a number of member countries, Uh, stood up what they called at the time the Millennial Development Goals. And these uh, Millennium Development Goals, there were eight of them, really addressed uh, hunger and food insecurity, the gender equity, uh, sustainability of uh, aquaculture, of the fisheries and the forests and and our agricultural lands and so on. And, And that was the first time for... Uh, a lot of focus to come to bear by all the, at that time was 193 member countries, and they said, well, you know, how do we actually measure if we're we're making success, if we're making a difference worldwide in reducing hunger, uh, uh, reducing malnutrition, uh, undernourishment, addressing the associated issues of uh, human health and gender equality and affordable uh, housing and, and on and on. And, uh, and so those goals started in uh, the, the uh, MDGs, as they're called, Millennium Development Goals 2000, and they went to 2015. And in between, about every five years, there were major assessments to take stock of how much better, hopefully, uh, attainment of these, uh, towards attaining these various eight uh, goals. Well, that uh, it, during that process to twenty fifteen, it was realized by FAO and, and the member nations that there needed to be uh, a little bit more specificity to and, and a way to target and, and to bring right resources collaboratively from the countries, from FAO, from non government organizations to bear. on on basically on food security and human human health around the world. That led to the development of the Sustainable Development Goals. And there are 17 of these goals that address uh, everything from ending poverty in all of its form, which is goal number one, to three, uh, two is ending hunger, achieving food security, improving nutrition, and promoting sustainable agriculture. And then, all the way to number five, uh, achieve uh, gender equity and empowering women and girls. And then all the way to, uh, say, number 17, strengthening the means for implementation and revitalization of global partnerships to sustain, uh, to sustainable development. So there were many, these are not, uh, I'd say not orthogonal, they're not independent goals, there's interrelationships between each of these 17 goals. And FAO had a uh, by agreement with other entities within the United Nations, uh, and recognizing that there were other non-government organizations, they took particular uh, uh, leadership and ownership of uh, goal number, Sustainable Development Goal number two, five, six, twelve, fourteen, and fifteen. So a subset, which were really about ending hunger, uh, about the gender equity. About the uh, ensuring availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation, and then uh, in, uh, in ensuring sustainable consumption and production patterns, conserving and uh, sustainable use of ocean seas marine uh, resources, and then protecting the the sustainable use of natural resources, including forests and and combating desertification and so on. They so, while there are 17 uh, sustainable development goals, FAO had a particular interest and they had a particular responsibility to track uh, by uh, certain targets and certain indicators. There are 21 indicators of those of that set of uh, six different uh, goals that they're primarily responsible for. But collectively, all sustainable development goals uh, would lead to different reports. And different uh, activities by the the 15 or so different departments within FAO, and we we worked with and we have worked with since 2009 a number of those departments where they've come to us. Uh, we we've, we've approached them and said, you know, you know, we have the project. We have these two uh, interlink courses, Globe 495 and Globe 9497. I'll talk more about those in a bit, but. Uh, that really, that interconnected to courses really leads to uh, a capable team of students, undergraduate students, who would be able to uh, help you, uh, you know, analyze, synthesize, evaluate whatever the project is. Uh, and so they have, um, they FAO has said, yes, we, you know, we'll continue to to focus then on this is one that's going to be more on gender equity or food security or whatever the projects that they stand up. So the other thing that is really important to know about FAO and this uh, really links back to a number of our departments and and uh, how we think about sustainable agriculture and sustainability is that. Uh, FAO, uh, even with the the uh, MDGs now, the Sustainable Development Goals, has said that it really is about three different dimensions. Uh, you know, something is sustainable, a system sustainable if it's economically viable, it's socially acceptable and environmentally sensible. So you have to you have to get people and land and our our uh, entities, institutions all connected. In uh, and. The way I think about it, sustainability is often about that. That means that if something's sustainable, that it is not only productive, it's profitable, and it is resilient and resistive to to external exogenous forces, and it is also diverse. And so uh, that's really a difficult lift to get all of those pieces uh, together, but it it means that, uh, you know, we we don't have a choice. We, we have, you know, millions of people, billions of people on the earth. And this is our one, our one planet earth. We've got to be able to figure out how to, how to sustain livelihoods and the environment and our, and our economies and our political uh, organizations forever. Um, In, in the, in FAO's work, again, they, they, come together periodically and update their strategic plan. And and just last year in 2022, uh, they put out a framework, a strategic framework, which really uh, lifted up again, this notion, they call it the five P's of sustainable development. It says that what we need to do is we need to protect the planet. That's the first P, planet. The second one is we have to be thinking about people. Ending hunger, lifting people out of malnutrition, you know, make sure that there's uh, equity and dignity. That's the second P, people. The third is prosperity, and that we need to make sure that people live in harmony with nature, but they also have, you know, conversion of the the resources, natural resources and human resources into, into made goods, into different capital goods. And so prosperity has to be part of it. And then peace, that there really has to be, uh, you know, inclusive societies that are living in harmony with their neighbors and and part of a global citizenship. So there has to be peace. And then the last P, the fifth one is partnership, that there really needs to be these global partnerships that involve not only the nations and the entities of the UN, such as FAO, there are a whole bunch of other entities of, of the United Nations as well. But there's also a whole host of uh, for-profit industries, companies, and also non-government organizations. And so there really needs to be a high level of uh, attention to public-private partnerships. And and that's really one of the other dimensions that is behind a lot of these uh, projects that our students have worked on since 2000.
1: always good to get some perspective a little longer than normal but that's why we're splitting it into two shows so listeners be sure to check back with us again tomorrow so we can get you part two thanks again for listening don't be afraid to reach out on social media we always love hearing from you but for today what do you say delaney should we let the listeners go
2: let's let them go